0: Well, last week, um, we were looking at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and you would think that I should be able to cover that in one sermon, but I didn't. And I still wonder if I'll get through it today. But anyway, (laughs) so I'm thankful that you guys are just patient with me and let me preach, and I hope you don't get tired (laughs) of it. So we're going to look and read that whole text again from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Uh, as we begin this morning. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. So he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. There are those that look at Genesis chapters 1 through 3 and they complain or find fault with God because he placed Adam and Eve in an environment where they could be tempted. Where there was a tree, that there was an apple on, that they could eat from, but should not eat from. What they appear to be desiring or asking for is a world without freedom. A world where you and I are forced to do the right thing all the time because there are no other options where we are forced to make the right choice, where we become almost mindless robots. And that is not the world that God wanted for you or for me. Nor does God want people who love him and serve him only because they have to. Only because that is their only option. That makes God out to be some kind of a dictator interested only in controlling us and only in getting from us what he wants. That makes God out to be a God who is not genuinely interested in a relationship, a free choice. You see, you can never really say yes to God. God. Unless you have the freedom and the opportunity to say no to God. You can never really give your life to Christ. Unless you have the opportunity to withhold it from him. God wants a relationship with you. And he wants one where you desire him. He doesn't want the kind of relationship where you are forced into this relationship. He wants you to choose him. That's what Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 is about. Freedom. Freedom to choose the very best things in life. And the ultimate best thing in all the world is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you're not choosing that, you are choosing something that is less than best. But if God put you in a world where that was your only choice, that would not be a perfect world. Because God wants you to simply choose him because you find him the most desirable thing in all the world. Freedom allows you to truly enjoy good food and beauty and wisdom. And those are God-given desires and he wants us to learn through life to choose to satisfy them in god-given ways. And so you start out the new Te- or the old testament you start out finding adam and eve in a garden where sin is indeed a possibility but it is not a tendency it's not the norm it's not what you expect it's not something that adam and eve you know were created with this natural inclination to sin and to rebel against God. But the possibility was there that they could disobey God. They were told not to eat from the apple from that one tree in the garden because they did have the freedom to eat from it. But it would not be a good choice to eat from that tree. There are all kinds of things in this world that you have the freedom to pick, to choose, to eat. But they are not the best choice for your life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, he says, You might say, I have the right to do anything. And Paul comes back and says, But not everything is beneficial. Paul says, You might say, I have the right to do anything. And Paul says, But not everything is constructive. Is, you know, the choices you make, you want to make sure they're beneficial and constructive. And so that's the problem that we run into in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve had freedom to do right or to do wrong. And they chose to misuse that freedom and make a poor choice. Every sin and every act of evil is simply an abuse Or misuse of freedom. Freedom that God has given to you. So to say yes to evil or to say yes to um, sin is to say no to God. You think this way is better for your life than God's way. To say yes to God is to say no to all that other stuff. It's all a matter of choice. In the freedom that God gives to you. They're going to put a screen up on. um, And it's probably too small for you to see very clearly. um, But that is a chart that shows a three-pronged approach to temptation. And you will notice that the same thing that the devil uses on Eve. Is the same kind of temptation that the devil used on Jesus in the temptation in Matthew chapter 4. And it's exactly the same approach that, that John, the beloved disciple, describes in 1 John uh, chapter 2 and verse 16 when he talks about the temptations of the world. These are the temptations that you will face the rest of your life, and I will face the rest of my life. Every temptation falls down into these categories. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, he talks about the desires of the flesh, the desires of our earthly bodies, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. What's he talking about there? Well, they're illustrated in Genesis chapter 3 when when Eve looked at the apple that Satan was tempting her with. And she says, oh, this apple is good for food. That's the desire of the earthly body. And this apple is good for the eyes. It's, It's attractive. That's the desire of the eyes. And then she says, and this apple is good for wisdom. I could be more like God if I eat this apple. That's the pride of life. Or in Matthew, when, when, when Jesus goes out in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and the, and the devil commands him after 40 days of fasting, <laughs> Jesus is hungry. And the devil says to him, why don't you command these stones to become bread? Well, I'm sure that was tempting. That was the desire of the flesh. And then he takes him up uh, to, you know, the temple peak. And he says, why don't you throw yourself down from here? The angels can catch you. It will be a spectacular sight. That had to do with the desire of the eyes to be seen in front of other people. And then he says, look, look at all the kingdoms of the world. I will give you those kingdoms if you will bow down and worship me. And that has to do with the pride of life. Um... Of, of being exalted and have position and and pride and all of that, so you see these themes of of provision and possessions and and then pleasure and then position and pride, and and some will say that those are targeted. Um, young adults will deal with with the desires of the flesh more, and then youth will desire with uh, will pr- have problems with the t- desires of the eye, and mature adults deal with. Temptation of the pride in life. But what I, what I see here in all three of these scriptures is that Satan kind of mingles them together. <laughs> I've seen an awful lot of middle-aged men who should be mature adults go back to the t- temptations of the youth and destroy their lives and the families. And, and God will use any one of these, or the devil will use any one of these to trick us up and to trip us, and oftentimes he'll put them all together in one big temptation. So he's got a three-pronged approach towards tempting us. Because a temptation is often stronger if it's a combination of all of these things as he used that temptation with Eve. Mark Twain sometimes was a pretty good theologian, (laughs) And one of, the, one of the things that he said is there is a charm about the forbidden that makes it unspeakably desirable. And Satan took that apple and he just took that forbidden apple and he made it unspeakably desirable compared to all the other fruits. Anywhere in the garden that Eve could have chosen to eat, she wanted that one That she could not have, should not have. The problem with temptation is this it is like putting blinders on a horse. We really can't see anything else but what we want, that one thing we want. We don't see all the other things and all the other trees and all the other fruit out there that we could enjoy, all we can see is that one that we shouldn't have. And we also don't see all the other things that we will lose by enjoying that one piece of fruit. So often when we are tempted, if we just stopped and thought about the consequences of caving into the temptation for very long, it would change things for us. But we jump in and we don't think about those consequences because we have those blinders on and all we can see is that temptation. That's what we want. And so Genesis puts together, Genesis chapter 3 puts together some very short phrases that just rip at our hearts. She took some. She ate it. She gave some to Adam. Adam was with her. Adam ate it. Eve made a choice. It was a deliberate choice to sin. A willful transgression against a known law of God. That's how Wesleyan, Arminian people describe sin, define it. A reformed definition of sin, those who would be of Lutheran or Baptist or Presbyterian background, all of those, um, they would define sin as anything contrary to the will of God. And it doesn't matter whether you chose it. It doesn't matter whether you knew it was sin. It doesn't matter your intent. It's, just, it's all sin if it's contrary to the will of God. We use a much more narrow definition of sin. That's why a Calvinist is always very sincere when they believe that they have no choice but to believe that they sin in word, thought, and deed every day. Because it does, they're sinning whether they even know it's wrong or not. Because of their definition of sin. So, it doesn't really matter here in this context of Genesis chapter 3. It matters in other scriptures. But in this context, Eve sinned. <laughs> it doesn't matter whether you're a Calvinist or a Wesleyan Arminian or what it, whatever it is. She sinned. She made a choice against a known law of God. Adam sinned before he even took the apple, however, before he ate it. His first sin was not the sin of rebelling and doing what he knew he should not do. His first sin was not not doing what he knew he should do. His first sin was that of omission, not doing what he knew he should do, rather than commission, doing what he knew he should not do. He had been commanded to hold dominion over the beasts of the field and over all creation. He had been commanded to take authority over the serpent, to keep the serpent in check along with all the other wild animals. But instead, Adam was there passively watching the serpent lead Eve in temptation and into making the worst mistake of her life. That little phrase, and Adam was there with her. Is one of a, 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 just a stinging rebuke <laughs> in Genesis chapter 3. Dr. James Garlow says Adam was not out there just picking berries or naming bugs, he should have taken authority over the serpent. He should have declared that Satan had no authority over Eve and that Eve should leave. But he didn't. He didn't encourage Eve to take any authority over the serpent. He just let her go into a dialogue with Satan. And thus both of them surrendered their authority over the serpent and let the serpent exercise authority over them. Now, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Adam and Eve were created as responsible creatures. They were to hold dominion. They were to rule over the voices that tempted them. But Adam is just passively present. The lights are on, but no one is home. He was not engaged in life. And that, my friends, is a specifically a male temptation. Not to take dominion, not to rule, not to engage in the battle of life, but to be there, not making any difference. Not doing what God has called you to do. We Allow and let someone else set the agenda. Even if that someone else is the serpent himself. So men, be very careful. Be very careful that Satan does not trick you into just standing back and being a passive man. Who does not exercise the authority and the rule that God has asked you to establish in the world. You will surrender your authority to Satan. And he will start leading you instead of you leading him. You tell Satan where he should go. (laughs) You establish the rule. You establish dominion. You take leadership. That is what Adam was supposed to be doing here, and Adam was just present, doing nothing but watching, observing, not leading, not holding dominion, not ruling. John R. W. Stott, the famed Christian statesman from England, says that taking full responsibility enhances our dignity as a a human being. He says, we cannot make excuses. We have to take responsibility. There's a book by Harvey Cox, and the book's title is, On Not Leaving It to the Snake. Cox claims that Eve's sin was not so much her disobedience as her surrender of responsibility before her disobedience. Her sin was not so much pride as it was laziness. It is the spiritual apathy of Adam and Eve which allowed them to let the snake tell them what they should do because they were not exercising dominion over the world. So let me ask you, the world is actively engaged in wanting to hold dominion over you. Are you holding dominion over the world. Are you ruling over it, or is the world ruling over you? You were created by God to rule over temptation. You were created by God to rule over the things in life that would destroy you spiritually. Step up to the plate, rule, hold dominion, do not allow Satan to tell you how to live your life. Sin is not only the attempt to try to be God, it is also the refusal to be men and women. It is the refusal to step up to the plate and be the people that God created us to be, the leaders the people in charge of all creation, that's who God wants us to be. The commonest defense of the Nazi war criminals was that they were merely following orders. You've heard it. But the court held them responsible nonetheless. And here's the deal. God will hold us responsible if we choose to live a life of apathy and we don't take control of our lives because we were created to do that. So sin is not only the evil or the sin that we choose to do, it is also the good that we do not choose to do. You see, if Adam and Eve had been doing what they were supposed to be doing, they would have never done what they shouldn't have done. If Adam and Eve had been busy controlling the environment, controlling Satan, controlling, taking rule over the creatures, they would not have eaten the apple in the first place. Most of the time, you and I will not fall into sin if we are doing what we know we are supposed to be doing at the time. Most of the time, when I sin and you sin, we are directly ignoring our responsibility. We know we have. <laughs> what was David doing? What was David supposed to be doing when he had the affair with Bathsheba? He was, as a king in the spring time of the year, he was supposed to be out with his army. And what was he doing? At home, passively on the top of his roof. Not taking dominion, not taking leadership, not taking control of his life. Sins of omission will always lead us to sins of commission. When we don't do what we are supposed to be doing, we will end up not doing something we should. I didn't say that quite right, but you know what i meant. There are two phrases I want you to catch in this text. What time is it? She ate it. He ate it. those are deliberate choices those are deliberate actions they are responsible creatures especially because it was a willful known willful transgression against the known law of god every action has a consequence what is the consequence of sin we'll get into that as we go further into chapter 3. But I just want you to notice here that that verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose your consequence. There are some consequences that are natural, that... They just result from the sin itself, as in verse 7. But there are other consequences that come because somebody has spoken them into your life. As God does. And he lays out consequences later in chapter 3. Here's the deal. You can be forgiven for all sin. But the consequences of your sin oftentimes remain even though you are completely forgiven and cleared by God. Adam and Eve are forgiven, but the consequences lingered and lingered and lingered, and they died. The immediate natural consequences for Adam and Eve were twofold. Their eyes were opened They had a knowledge of good and evil that they did not have before, but it wasn't a good kind of knowledge of good and evil. There was this inward tug all of a sudden in their heart that inclined them, that gave them a tendency. You know it. You have it. I have it. A tendency towards sin and a tendency to rebel against God and a tendency not to want to do what God wants us to do their intimate knowledge of God was all of a sudden warped, as is clearly evidenced as you go further into chapter 3. And all of a sudden, they think that when they sin, they should run away from God instead of run to him, which is what we should do when we sin. But secondly, they knew that they were naked, and they had something to hide. To fully appreciate that, you have to go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, where it says the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Can you imagine what it would have been like to live your life with no actions in your past that you were ashamed of? Absolutely nothing that you could think of that you had... You wouldn't care if everyone in the world knew everything about you. Can you imagine what it would be like to live your life and, and have no thoughts that have ever raced through your mind that you didn't care if anyone else found out about? You know, if every thought was an open book, and they just put up there on the screens? <laughs> for the whole world to see, and, and there would be no thought that you would ever be embarrassed about? Can you imagine if, if all of your motives were good and pure, and you never had an ulterior motive to keep hidden? Can you imagine what it would be like if there were no words that you had ever spoken that you didn't wish you could take back because every word had been great? That's what Adam and Eve had. But now, one apple later, they are naked, and all of a sudden, they are no longer unashamed. They are naked and full of shame. It is not that they were ashamed of their bodies. Their bodies didn't instantly age and sag and whatever else. It was a sense that there was something flawed inside of them that they did not want anyone else to know about or to see. And for the first time in their life, they wanted to wear a mask. They wanted to become a hypocrite. And pretend to be someone that they were not. And Adam and Eve had never ever experienced that before in life. What they knew was simply before this, they were simply the children of God and they had nothing to hide. But now there was something dwelling in them that was contrary, different than what a child of God should have in them. And they did their very best with what they had, and they sewed fig leaves to cover up themselves, but it did not solve the problem. They were still ashamed, and they did not want the other one to know the real person inside. One of the biggest consequences of sin is that we try to cover ourselves up before other people and before God. And we try to make ourselves presentable. And there is nothing you can do to do that well. Uh, I just can't imagine fig leaves being sewn together and doing it very well. (laughs) it just wouldn't work well and you see the things that you and I tend to cover ourselves up our good works this and that, religion and all kinds of things that we use to cover ourselves it doesn't work very well it doesn't cover us nothing but the blood Of the Lord Jesus Christ. Washes away. Our sin. And our shame. So as I close this morning. Let me remind you about freedom. Use the freedom you have. To do what is good. And beneficial to you. To your relationship with God. Let me remind you about temptation. That sins of omission often lead to commission. If you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, you will probably end up doing what you should not be doing. Let me remind you about sin. It's a willful choice, a transgression against something that you know Displeases God because it's bad for you. And then let me talk to you about consequences. The consequence, the big consequence of sin is shame. And every single one of us, since Adam, we bear the consequences of our sin. And shame is part of that. But Jesus wants to set us free from shame. And he does not want you sewing fig leaves to cover yourself up. He doesn't want you to, you know, become a hypocrite. He doesn't want you to wear a mask. He wants you to be real. He wants you to be you. And then he wants to be allowed to come in and throw the righteous robe of Christ. Let the blood of Christ Wash you and clean you. So when God looks at you. He sees the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of your sin.